what is happening in the body in that moment? There is a response in the body, right? Maybe there's nervousness, maybe there's guilt, maybe there's shame. What is that response? What is that doing to us in our workplace interactions? Most of us are living in a state of fight or flight. We're, we're just a fear-based society that is constantly reacting. So many folks don't even realize that they don't feel safe within their own body. So I, I think these are things that we need to name, right? There are so many things that go on at work that actually are emotional or psychological abuse, that are bullying, that are gaslighting. I was unconsciously judgmental of other women who didn't push through and keep going like I did. You know, if an employee said they were sick and they needed time off for something like the flu, I would silently think to myself, for goodness sake, it's just the flu. I mean, I've had surgery in the morning and been back at my laptop by the afternoon, but I was very, very wrong in that. Hi, everybody. I'm Felicia. And I'm Rachel. And welcome to the SGO podcast, the She Geeks Out podcast. This season is unlike any that we've put out so far. What does the future of work look like when we're thinking about diversity and inclusivity and equity? And what does it look like for different groups of people? We got to interview so many incredible people. You'll also be hearing some little snippets and interjections from our facilitation team. You'll get their perspectives on what DEI really looks like in the workplace from a practical, actionable standpoint. So let's go. When we think about work in the current hustle culture climate, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. We use phrases like dream job and pursuing passions, but this mindset doesn't allow for rest, recovery, and equity. This week, we're talking to some of our favorite experts, leaders, and facilitators about workplace trauma, psychological safety, somatics, and emotional intelligence. We'll start with Belma McCaffrey, CEO and founder of Work Bigger, asking what it looks like to work from a healthy place. Because one thing I always stress to our members and to our clients is what does it look like to work from a healthy place? Like, what does that, what does that really mean for you? Not because you're striving to belong, right? Which comes from a place of, you know, trying to fill this like deeper psychological need, but instead, what does it look like to work in a healthy way, in a sustainable way, in a work where work becomes a vehicle for you, right? That you leverage, you're in charge of that. Yeah, I was just listening to a podcast with Adam Grant. He was talking about the great resignation being a little, there's a lot of regret that's starting to form because a lot of us are thinking about how, you know, oh, if we leave our job, then we're going to find something else. And it's going to create that like piece of happiness that I was missing at this other job. And then they're like, oh yeah, no, this place is also terrible. <laughs> or like, or there's a new set of problems that I'm facing or whatever. Or maybe it wasn't worth it to get that extra bump in salary to deal with X, Y, and Z. So I'm curious to just know if you're seeing that. What you're describing, this like, let me try another job and maybe that will solve itself. That's what I did for almost 10 years. And that's what I see people doing before they join our membership. Like they think, okay, it's the job's fault, right? In a sense, right? It's job's fault or I'm not happy here. This isn't aligning with me. So I'm going to go, no, it doesn't work. I think more than a mindset shift, I think that's where purpose comes in. That's where I think it's really important to do the inner work so that when you are going into a job, it doesn't have to be the perfect one, right? But then you're going into it with eyes open of like knowing this job is maybe just a stepping stone 
into the next one, right? And that intention is really clear and is laid out. Or this job is meant to, you know, help me provide more of an income for these next two years, right? So you have that clarity. And I think what what I see people, they can shift out of that cycle when they start to get clear on who they are and what they want on a deeper level. So that can be, it's not simple, right? But just asking these questions of like, what are the things that I stand for? And values, do my values align with that of the company? I think that is something that you can connect to on a deeper level. And it's interesting because, you know, when we talk about job fulfillment, like fulfillment is, it's an emotional need, right? And to get clear on what that is, like what that emotional satisfaction looks like, you have to do this deeper work of like, who am I? What do I want? And what is my intention for this next job? Tying it back to some of that like generational mindset shifting around work and what place it has in our lives. I know when I was younger growing up, my, you know, older generation, my parents, whoever always told me like work is just a job. So it doesn't have to be your passion in life. And I think that's something that's shifted over the last few decades where now we see people who are like, no, work has to be my end all be all passion. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the values piece. It's not just about making money. It's also, it has to spiritually fulfill me or some need in, in that way. And I think especially with Gen Z, I'm definitely not part of that generation, but I've seen a lot more where I don't think it's necessarily they're looking at work as it needs to be their passion, but I actually think they're maybe moving away from that mindset back into this previous thinking of it's just a job. It's a nine to five. Don't call me after the job is done, you know, like that kind of mindset. And I'm really curious if with your membership and even maybe with the conversations you're having with companies, like, are you seeing differences in how people are looking at that next job or that next step in terms of what they're looking for? Yeah, I see both. Like I still see people who, and uh, I have a lot of thoughts around this because I think when we say our job needs to, first, I, I hate the question of like, what's your passion? I think that really sends us down this rabbit hole. I think work should be a vehicle, right? That like you decide, you decide what it should be for you and how it serves you. And I see both. I see people rebelling and being like, no, I don't, I don't want this work to be my all, right? And it shouldn't, it doesn't have to be tied to my purpose. And I say, good, like whatever you want it to be, right? I think it's that's where it's getting clear on what you want and what's most important to you is so important because then you can drive that conversation for yourself versus being flooded with all these external messages and letting those drive your decisions essentially. So yeah, I see both. I see people who are rebelling and saying like, no, that's not what I want. And I think that's totally fine. And I see people who do still really want work to be connected to their passion and their purpose. And I think wherever you fall, like the deeper question is like, how do you feel about it? Yeah. And there's a really great quote to sort of tie these two threads together that I think about a lot. This artist, he used to be based in New York and I think he's in Hawaii now, Adam Kurtz. And so he has this quote, which is do what you love and you'll work super fucking hard all the time with no separation or any boundaries and also take everything extremely personally. And I feel like that just needs to be like tattooed on my chest because that I think is the, like the dark side or like the danger of doing stuff that you're super passionate about. And I think every generation as Rachel 
was just saying is trying to like figure this out. And we, none of us have figured it out yet. Maybe Gen Z is the generation. Maybe it's Gen Alpha. I think that's the next round that's coming up. But yeah, I, I don't think anyone's really figured it out. But the work that you're doing and what we've been talking about, I think are all attempts to try and find that balance in some way. Yeah. yeah. So. Can I add one more thought? Yeah. I think this whole idea and not just an idea, the whole pursuit of finding your purpose, right? And doing what you love and doing something that you're passionate about. I, I just want to say like that does come from a place of privilege. Like you have to be in a certain place. Cause I think about my parents, like they didn't have that available to them, right? Because they were like, let me just get food on the table. Let me make sure my kids are supported. So just think about like our society, right? And where we're at. And it's a privilege to be able to have that to say like, okay, I'm going to work towards my full potential. Like your basic needs really do need uh, to have been met. So I can see like, as you're talking about now, like generation alpha, like there as we're evolving, maybe as a society, right. Or as we're, I don't know, maybe moving up in a sense, it would be so fascinating to see like how that evolves. And then what does it mean to reach your full potential, right. From a maybe more evolved place. I don't know. Now I'm getting all like meta, but I'm just, that's where my head is going. I'm like, this is fascinating thinking about the future in that way. But I am curious with the work that you are specifically doing when you are coaching, when you're doing these workshops and folks are struggling with, you know, difficult personalities, toxic workplaces, bad managers, like how do you help them to address it? Or do you just say like, maybe it's time to move on? Like, how do you work through those? So this framework to me is really foundational and understanding what happens to us as human beings as we get older. And it's really rooted in the idea that when we're born, we are all born good. We're all, we have that innate goodness. And what happens is when we're kids, someone does, or, and this is like a very summarized framework. Okay. It's like a lot more complex, but I'm just for the interest of time, I'll, I'll be really quick with it. But yeah, something happens or doesn't happen or someone says something or doesn't say something like maybe an adult yells at us, right? Or maybe another kid takes our toy. And when that happens, we have this other part of us that's born and that's called the wound itself. And this is based on the three selves framework. And it's by Franz Rupert, who's a psychologist, I believe in Germany or professor in Germany. And it's, I can give you the book recommendation if you want. It's talks about these parts that we have as human beings. And when this happens to us as children, this part of us, this wound itself is born, right? And that's like a really raw part of us that when that part comes up, we need to protect that. And that's where the third self is born, which is the survivor self. And our survivor selves, we spend about 98% of our time in that part. Right. And the survivors in us are, you know, the parts of us that are defensive, maybe the perfectionist, that part of us will do whatever it takes to protect that wounded self, right? To protect that part of us that experiences that raw emotion or that feels a lot of pain. It's really, it's trauma, right? It's this like splitting of our self. And when we're born, that original part, that's called the healthy self. So I think. Every individual has these parts, right? Every person has a healthy self, a wounded self, and a survivor self. And most of the time as human beings, we're operating in that survivor self. Our defense mechanisms are up, right? That's why people can communicate in a way that's productive. Like one thing I teach in Work Bigger is nonviolent communication. And that really requires us to 
one, first be in touch with our own needs as individuals, and then also start to understand the needs of others. And we all have the same needs as human beings, or we all have a need for belonging and connection and love. And I think it's, it's because of this that I believe in this, we're all essentially good, right? We're all connected. We're all, these are similarities. These are, these are things that bind us together. So it really comes from this. So when people struggle around with toxic bosses, first of all, none of that is excusable. Bad behavior is not excusable. I always say like, we need to acknowledge what you're feeling. We need to acknowledge your pain. I acknowledge your pain, right? And all of that, that's coming up for you, the trauma and and the struggle and the toxicity that you're experiencing, none of that is okay. I also know that boss that's over there, that's behaving really badly. This is not an excuse, but they're also coming from a, a place of pain. And that doesn't mean you have to accept their behavior or that you have to be okay with their behavior, right? You can, you have to set that boundary for yourself. For me, that's just understanding like human psychology and what's happening with humans, right? And how we're operating from these different parts. And I think the more that we can understand these parts of ourselves, our our healthy self, our survivor and our wounded, the more we can start to operate from that healthy part. And we can make a choice and we can say, no, today I'm going to you know, I'm going to choose something different. Well, I mean, I think it's great because it's definitely like a very trauma informed approach to work in general. And I know, especially in the work that we're doing in the DEI space, I feel in general, a lot of practitioners are moving towards that as like the next step in how we're thinking about the work. And that's what we're doing internally as well. Like really thinking about like the body and somatics and, and trauma informed ways of having these conversations. And so I think that ties in so well with that. Let's talk more about what somatics is with SGO's Fatima Denke. So what is somatics? Somatics is a technique, a theory, a movement, a method, all of those things. And somatics helps us think about our body. It's really related to the body, right? And it's helping us think about what might be processing internally that we might not always be in touch with, especially as distinct from the mind. With a lot of ancient traditions and religions, somatics is nothing new. It might have not been called somatics, but the concept and the idea that there are things that sit within the body or that there are certain feelings or trauma and pain and excitement and joy, they live within the body and our body responds in ways based off of our environments, whatever we're feeling and so forth. That concept has existed for thousands of years, right? That's ancestral wisdom that we're resurfacing again. What we now see is, as we see it coming back into our generations, I think the person who usually gets credit for the term itself, the coining of the term is Thomas Hanna, right? And he is an educator in the field. And he was trying to describe the number of techniques that people can use or think about as they help themselves increase bodily awareness through movement, through relaxation, and so forth. Why is this important in the DEI space? Well, it's important because DEI work is emotional work, period, right? If you are doing DEI work, I don't care if you have all of the privilege and power or you don't. It is the type of work that is emotional, that is taxing, that can be draining, because what we are ultimately talking about is 
the livelihood of folks. We are talking about accepting folks for who they are. We are talking about access to things that people need and sometimes want, right? We are literally talking about humanity. And so everything that we experience has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And if we are experiencing things as humans with this body, then that means that we are also absorbing things as humans in this body. So for example, when we're talking about race and racism in the United States or in other countries, and we are facilitating a workshop about that, as a DEI practitioner, I need to be aware of the impact my workshop might have on folks. Why? Because it's not just a logical workshop that's helping people understand why race and racism exists and how we can dismantle it. It is also emotional work. When we ask folks to reflect on their racial experiences in the United States and those experiences have been horrible, we are asking them to revisit a memory that might trigger something for them. What is happening in the body in that moment, right? When we ask white folks, what is your role in dismantling racism? There is a response in the body. Maybe there's nervousness, maybe there's guilt, maybe there's shame. What is that response and what is that doing to us as we meet? What is that doing to us in our workplace interactions? And you can use that framework or that example that I just shared with any other identity, right? And so somatics is important in our field because it helps us not just think about what's happening neck up. So not just the cerebral level of thinking and action planning and what we should do. Granted, those things are important too, but somatics works also helps us come into our body. Here's SGO DEI facilitator Rachel Sadler on psychological safety, followed by Dr. Hung Dip. Psychological safety is the belief that you won't be punished or experience retaliation at work for speaking up. It's feeling safe to express ideas without fear of humiliation if they aren't supported by your colleagues. It's feeling protected by the structures at your workplace so that you can safely report harassment, unfair treatment, or bullying. Without psychological safety, folks don't feel safe being creative or failing out of fear that they will be perceived as incompetent. They don't trust that they can report violations to human resources out of fear that they will be fired or demoted. Psychological safety is an important component of employee satisfaction and retention and can ensure people are willing to take the intellectual risks necessary for innovation. Yeah, I see psychological safety, obviously, through a psychological lens of our nervous system and that even if you're in a physically safe space, if you have been, you know, have experienced a lot of trauma, you know, you think about the different types of trauma, right? Intergenerational trauma, current trauma, that trauma of just the last two years. I mean, there's so many different types, right? But I think part of this, what I've really seen and what I've been working on for myself and my clients is rewiring our nervous system because most of us are living in a state of fight or flight. We're just been in fear. We're, we're just a fear-based society that is constantly reacting and that more research has also been going out about the fawn response, which is the people-pleasing. Right? Because a lot of clients who come to me are really people-pleasers and not understanding. And when I help them understand that people-pleasing has been a survival technique 
that they've learned because mostly because of through childhood and realizing that if you are able to please and read the room and understand how to placate your caregivers or whomever taking care of you, that that is a very adaptive response. But there comes a point where certain responses are no longer adaptive and they become harmful, right? Because you're no longer, you're constantly putting other people's needs before your own. So I think once I'm able to break that down and then feeling safe and calm in our bodies. And I think, I don't know about you all, but there's times, you know, you can just feel this like buzzing, like your body just is like buzzy. And then potentially there's different stress, right? The physiological reaction to the stressors, because the stressors are just constantly bombarding. They're just coming, right? And especially with this, I mean, you look at what's going on with the war right now, and it's like a war also on TikTok and Instagram and, you know, whatever, it's just everywhere. And so we're constantly being bombarded by this. So these are the stressors. And then our stress is our physiological response to the stressors, right? Where it's different for each person. And then the worry is the cognitive thoughts, And then when you put worry and the physical stress together, that's when you get anxiety. And then panic attacks is like a, you know, when it's just constant anxiety that is unmanageable and results in, you know, intense feelings. So I think for most of us, it's like it's become such a norm and such a de facto part that I think it almost feels weird to be resting. It doesn't feel safe to be resting. So I think part of this with my work with my clients and especially looking with my clients who their bodies have felt alien right, for lack of a better word, to them, or their bodies have not been their bodies. Their bodies have been taken by other bodies. Their bodies have been used for other things, that there is dissociation from their bodies. And so part of this work is how do you sort of reclaim your body in a way that is a stepwise approach so it doesn't, you're not flooded, which is then being overwhelmed too quickly. So I think in terms of that safety, in terms of feeling safe within ourselves. I think so many folks don't even realize that they don't feel safe within their own body because they have also perhaps been using other substances to numb, right? And I remind people too that when you feel numb, like psychologically numb, it's not because you lack emotions. You're just experiencing so many emotions that your brain has to shut down in order to even just process. You know, I was listening to this one Ukrainian refugee and some reporter had the gall to ask them, like, how are you feeling right now? I think the person was like, I have no feeling. Like yesterday I was sitting in my office working and laughing with my colleagues or whatnot, right? And today I am here walking to Poland. Like, I have no feeling. Like, I need to focus on the goal at hand, right? And I'm sure then the, the cascade of feelings is going to come like, after, right? I mean, I think this is from a psychological perspective, because I was seeing how the IRC is starting to do provide some psychological care. And I think that's great. They're doing some of the triage stuff, but this is, it's so massive. And sometimes my brain, I can't even like start thinking about this. But yeah, I think in terms of, you know, feeling safe, I think so often folks are using or have used substances or whatever coping strategies to not be in their bodies because it's just been not safe to inhabit their bodies. One thing I actually was thinking of as you were just talking about you know, how you even feel safe within your own body. I actually had never heard of it until this morning, but I'm curious if you are familiar with the snail study, the snail memory study at all. But essentially what I learned about was this study, I think it's from like maybe 2018 or 2017, so a couple of years ago, but it was essentially scientists were looking at how snails can, like 
basically transfer memory. So the idea of that genetic coded in memory and how that has a lot of implications for humans as well, because of course we're not snails, but there's been a lot of research and discussion around, you know, generational trauma and how the body holds that and a lot of um, science and research into that. And so I think that tying back to what you were just sharing, I'm really, you know, thinking about how things like the Ukraine and Russia invasion of Ukraine right now is going to be lasting potentially very long term. People today are probably still dealing with the impact of slavery. I was so struck by the fact that you told us about how slavery was legal till 1985 in Mauritania. I had no idea. And that's within our lifetimes, right? And a lot of times, especially in the US, we think, oh, this is so long ago, but it's really not. And even in certain parts of the world, it's current. And so tying it back to your work with the the people that you're working with, I'm wondering if you're seeing any shifts with how that discussion around sort of like the body experience, the trauma mm-hmm. experience, the rest conversation has maybe shifted or mm-hmm. any implications for in the future, how that might impact the individuals you're working with or even the people that they're involved with. I mean, that's a study of epigenetics, right? Of looking at how our DNA is changed over time because of intergenerational trauma and how it impacts each generation, you know, based on environmental factors and genetic factors. Like I think about my mom, right? And that when she got on that boat, she was seven months pregnant with me. So thinking about all the cortisol that was just like pumping through her, right? And that I remember when I went to Vietnam and she was, you know, growing up, like the government could come at any time when, you know, the North won and they were living in the South, that that you can just come and take over your house or take over anything that you want. And her brothers were, you know, POWs and, you know, all this stuff. Right. And so I think with my cousins and I, with my generation, we talk a lot about how our families have this fear-based mentality and that it really was so prevalent. The recent time that I was visiting that within the span of five minutes, my mom told me, she said, okay, I was getting ready to drive her somewhere to work. And she said, okay, we'll turn off the dryer because we don't want to leave a dryer on. It's going to like cause fire to the house. The house might catch on fire. And then she said, okay, and then you should also bring the key in case the garage door opener doesn't work because electricity fails. And then she said, okay, and then make sure as you're pulling out that like nobody runs into the garage and hides in the garage. Right. And I think it was just so poignant that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what I grew up with. Like somebody who constantly was so fear-based, right? Because she was a stranger in strange lands and was afraid of police, of immigrants. I mean, there are so many things, right? So I think about how that's impacted, you know, me and my own, like, state of hypervigilance. And that for her being a product, right, of the war, and I think of everything that she's been through, and that I think it is it just, like, so much in, you know, our DNA and thinking about how, when you talked about sort of the idea, I don't know, I wrote down like pleasure activism because I was just thinking about how a lot of the working and the hypervigilance and is part of sort of the white supremacy culture work environment. And that, you know, in reading pleasure activism and sort of NAP, I think it's NAP ministry and, you know, some of these other mm-hmm. ones of that part of that was part of this work culture was part of also 
during slavery times, right, of like working in the fields, you know, and not resting and whatnot, and the idea of being lazy. Or I would love to hear what your thoughts are, since I think you're right. I think there's a collective trauma that we're all sort of experiencing, and yet we all sort of show up in the workplace and do our things and make sure the widgets get built because we got to pay them bills because we still live in the systems. So as long as we are living in these systems, I guess I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on any sort of practical advice that you might want to give for folks who are struggling on how that they can show up in a way that feels good, authentic, supportive, both for their employees, for their colleagues, and for themselves. Yeah, like I said, I'm still figuring out, right, how to show up each day. There was no course in grad school on how to be a therapist during a pandemic, right? And post, well, I don't think we're done yet. But yeah, I mean, I think part of this is just knowing that this is, I think, a lifetime project. I mean, we're all in this for however long we, we were, we're here. So if it goes back to like doing some of the basic stuff of like, did you drink some water today? Did you have something to eat? Did you go to the bathroom? Right? Like, I, I don't know. I, I think sometimes in those moments we, we kind of want to complicate things, but I also am like, okay, let's just go back to some of the basics first and looking a little bit at like Maslow's, you know, hierarchy. And I think part of this is really knowing how to self-suit without any external things, right? And, and I'm all about, you know, sometimes needing to numb out on YouTube or TikTok or whatnot, right? It's like, yeah, you know, it's like, that's the pleasure of being alive, right? Being a human. But I think part of this is how can we self-soothe ourselves? And sort of that moment, like think about Viktor Frankl, right? And he is a psychiatrist who was like the Holocaust survivor. And he watched his wife and his family, you know, get murdered in front of him. And he uses a form of logotherapy called existential therapy. And so he, you know, came out of this and, you know, was still able to make meaning. And part of this is he says that part of the process in life is to increase. There is the stimulus and there's the response, right? And if we can just widen that space a little bit between something happening and like our response to it, I think that will give us a little bit more space. It requires just... I wouldn't say being Zen-like, but I think it just requires having compassion for all of us in that moment is that we're, we're trying our best. Here's Dr. Becca Shansky, Associate Professor of Psychology, specializing in sex differences and brain function, talking about the research her team is working on at the Laboratory of Neuroanatomy and Behavior at Northeastern University. So the research in my lab is focused on understanding what happens to your brain when you experience a traumatic event. And this is relevant to mental illnesses like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, which is twice as common in women as it is in men. So if you think about PTSD, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is somebody having like a flashback of the traumatic event itself, right? And so that kind of memory-based symptom is something that we can study in the lab using a process called Pavlovian fear conditioning, which is simply associating a previously neutral cue. Usually we use an auditory tone, just sort of like a 30-second beep that ends and the rat gets a little foot shock from the floor. So that association, then the animal begins to be basically afraid of that tone every time it hears it. And so that's sort of like the basic process of what we do to the animals. And forever, of course, this research was mostly done only in male animals. And so the behaviors that we use to judge, is this animal afraid, were determined in male animals. And there was basically 
one behavior, which is called freezing, or the animal basically stops moving. So what that means is that any movement that the animal does is basically thrown out of the data analysis. And what we started to notice in my lab is that some animals would actually, when that tone comes on, instead of freezing, they start running around the cage like they're trying to escape. And we called that behavior darting. And we found that it happens more in females than it does in males. Here now, suddenly, we have this quantifiable behavior that has been essentially thrown in the garbage for decades because people were not studying females or people were focused too much on just freezing. That's really been the main focus of my lab is trying to understand what are the neural circuits that cause darting to happen in this subset of female animals. Why is it only happen in females, or not only, but mostly happen in females? What can that tell us about the range of behavioral responses individuals might have when they experience a traumatic event? And how does that lead to potentially things that we can predict about long-term outcomes after a traumatic event. Here's Karina Becerra, Director of Customer Advocacy at Podium in Utah. Karina is a longtime member of the She Geeks Out community and recently stepped into a role expanding the customer success team at Podium. She told us about modeling healthy boundaries for her team and also how she supports a team of folks who have very different backgrounds than her own. Oh, goodness. I mean, I think for most of us, it's recognizing that like the early days of COVID were incredibly stressful. We were all so, oh gosh, it was such a different time. But now that we've had, you know, a couple of years to evolve, because I think all of us have had to evolve, like sort of take a tally of what's important. What is it that we want to do with our lives? How is it that we want to conduct our lives? I think that I have a new appreciation of doing work that makes me happy, that I'm passionate about, and that like I say no to things. Like I don't have time. If it doesn't build me, if it doesn't make me happy, if it doesn't challenge me, I'm not really going to take it on. So I think that it, it's definitely given me an opportunity to retally and prioritize what's really important. I have a really great ability to translate how making these kind of changes and these priorities really impact our bottom line. If people are happy, if people have a balanced worked life, there is no burnout. It will show in the work that they do. They're going to show up. They're going to do it well. We're going to be able to serve our customers as best as we can. And it actually hasn't been as tough of a road. I think that once you you start seeing the impact of not making changes, attrition, you know, customers deciding to leave you all together because they haven't received the, the support that they got, that they were expecting because you weren't able to do proper training because somebody was remote and you weren't thinking about how they would ingest information. You can sort of pinpoint and draw that line back to, these are important things that we need to, we need to consider. The market out here right now People are looking for opportunities that fulfill them in ways apart from just a paycheck. And if you don't come to them with both growth opportunities, learning and development opportunities, and make their wellness a priority, they're going to leave. Next is Melanie Ho, author of Beyond Leaning In. So much about workplaces today that are stifling, that are frustrating, that don't allow people to be their best selves or their best selves as employees, that it's not just this sense of disengagement. It's also that the business in this book is in trouble 
because of the way that culture and leadership and good practices there are ignored. And I do think that that's what's driving a lot of the great resignation. Well, I would like to switch a little bit and talk about, since we're kind of talking, we sort of danced around like the toxic environment. We haven't actually named that word, but I think we do talk mm-hmm. a lot about what that looks like. And I've been like, 2022 is the year of setting boundaries. Like it's just so mm-hmm. important. You wrote around psychological abuse, bullying, gaslighting mm-hmm. in the workplace. If you can just talk a little bit about that and also how that maybe can show up and maybe that's part of the concerns around the hybrid environment and maybe we can dream up some solutions. Yeah, I think these are things that we need to name, right? There are so many things that go on at work that actually are emotional or psychological abuse, that are bullying, that are gaslighting, that are people being told that what they said or what they did did not happen, for example. I can't tell you how many times I'll hear stories from women who are saying, I can't believe this thing that happened to me. You know, this coworker of mine said I did X, Y, Z, and I did not. And when I questioned them on it, they said they never said that before. And it's like on record, there's an email, right? There's a trail. Or psychological abuse, right? which gaslighting I think is part of, there's all of these behaviors that get written off as difficult men. Mm. How often also we see these dynamics that are actually pretty similar to the more commonly discussed also terrible forms of abuse, such as in family or in romantic relationships, where you'll see, for example, a boss who's incredibly toxic, who might be always yelling, who might be always questioning an employee, often a woman, making her question her self-worth, and then will the next day apologize right? Or give her a special assignment or give her a shout out. And then two days later is back to the original behaviors. And it is really the equivalent of the like toxic buy you flowers, abuse buy you flowers. And I just think we have to start naming these things because they happen every day. They happen in every single workplace and they're just written off as, oh, that's not ideal, but He means well. And what we don't talk about is the lasting mental health impact. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I think especially nowadays, you know, going back to pulling the thread we were discussing around hybrid workspaces Mm -hmm. and what happens when this really toxic behavior is happening and you are literally sitting at home and you're in your home and you don't even have then the luxury of Mm -hmm. stepping outside your office and going to go bitch about it in the cafeteria with your team members who are also dealing with the same issues. And I think about this too, because as we're also seeing more younger people come into the workforce and we have all of these different distinct generations, how can we make sure that we're not perpetuating these terrible behaviors? My very first job out of college I had an incredibly verbally and emotionally abusive boss who was like teetering on the verge of also being physically abusive too. Mm, yeah. It was horrific. It just really shaped a lot of how I thought about work and how I thought about myself and, you know, my entire life. Like I would have nightmares about work. And so, you know, thankfully that was just like a year and a half of my life. And then I got out of it, but it was such an eye opener because I remember thinking to myself at age, whatever I was, 22, 23, thinking, oh, wow, I never understood how people don't leave abusive relationships. Because to Mm -hmm. me, I always thought, 
walk out the door, just leave. Why would you stick around? And then I was like, oh, I get it. Like, I really get it. It was such an eye opener for me that I've really never forgotten. I mean, one of the things I talk about in, in this blog piece is that we think of jobs as like pro and con lists. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to leave these abusive situations if there are also good things in the job, right? You can make the con lists, which are like, you know, emotionally abusive, almost physically abusive boss, toxic environment, like crying after I get home from work. Like people will make these con lists and then they'll make these pro lists, which are like, I love my coworkers and my job is meaningful and I just got a promotion and it looks like they're even and they're not even. And I think what a lot of folks don't understand is there are some things if they are on the con list, throw out the list. This isn't about like, counting the number of things, just some things are not acceptable. Yeah. And of course, just want to acknowledge that obviously some folks don't have a choice. It's the same reason why people stay in these abusive relationships too, yeah. which is just so, it just it makes it even worse. But that's why this changing the systems is what is so important versus, and this is why the beyond part of leaning in is so important because you can advocate for yourself. You can lean in all you want, but if there isn't a system in place, if you don't have the people who are in the positions of power to actually hear you and empathize with you, then it just falls on deaf ears. There's a concept I found really helpful. And actually, so this is interesting. So I have a a Medium blog that has like 20 followers or something like it. But like I, you know, and then I go and like look at my metrics to see which posts are the most read. And the most read posts are this one on psychological abuse and um, bullying and a parallel one on institutional betrayal. Mm. And that's a phrase I hadn't heard Mm. before, but it was developed by Mm. psychologists originally around the idea of sexual abuse and assault. And what it looks like in the military or at colleges and universities versus anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And that the lasting impact on mental health is much worse if it takes place in the military or college or university where somebody feels like they're not listened to because the initial abuse is then has this cumulative effect of being gaslight by your institution. And even though the research is originally on that context, they've expanded that research to really look at any situation where we feel like our institutions betray our health and well-being. So for example, if in COVID-19, people felt like their employers were putting their selves at danger, that's the kind of institutional Betray. And once I heard that phrase, it just explained so much about why these situations feel so bad, because it's not just like, oh, these awful things that so many women have these stories about, but how they feel when their institutions look the other way. I now have four-year-old twins. They're about to turn five. But my journey to become a parent was so, so incredibly difficult. I met my husband over here in the US, although he is Australian and had no idea at the time that I had any type of medical issues that were going to cause me problems having children. So we both decided that we wanted to try and create a family fairly quickly, being both older and it was something that we really wanted. And over the space of about a two-year period, I ended up 
I lost four babies, one at five months. I then went through about a hundred tests. I was in and out of hospitals, specialists. I ended up having nine surgeries in 18 months, including a hysterectomy. And then I went through a journey to have our children via surrogacy. Now you would think that that sort of would be the end of the story and it was all happy sailing from there. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Our surrogate went into labor very early. Our children were born at 28 weeks and they spent almost four months in the hospital fighting for their lives. As if all of that wasn't bad enough, though, I then went through a very public legal battle to gain parental rights for my children in Australia because it was something that was incredibly important to both my husband and I, I was not going to let anybody tell me that after what I had been through that those little girls were not ours. Well, unfortunately, commercial surrogacy is illegal in Australia. It's actually a crime in three states. And altruistic surrogacy, which is where no money is exchanged with the surrogate, is incredibly difficult. You know, while all this was happening, I obviously had a very busy legal career and I made partner in the firm. But honestly, I did all of that at a cost. You know, I would have surgeries or go through procedures and then I would literally be, you know, on calls with clients and I was working ridiculous hours. I was continuing to push through to... (laughs) crazy levels. I had surgeries and I'd be on calls in the afternoon and I continued to push and push and push and it impacted every area of my life. It impacted my health. I continued to have, I've got endometriosis and to rare blood conditions, which is why I ultimately wasn't able to have children myself. But, you know, I continued to push through and I continued to have endometriosis flare-ups. I continued to have issues with my health. And, you know, I realized that there is definitely is a better way than simply pushing through. And I also realized about myself that it impacted the way that I managed other people as well. And as a female leader, I really think that we have an obligation in all of this, in gender equality, in workplace equality, to lead by example and to support other women through their journey as well. And I did a poor job of that at times. And so one of the things that I wanted to do through my book was really talk about the things that I did wrong and to try and educate other women going through similar processes that we all need to do better. We need to be mentoring and supporting other women through the journey and leading by example. It's so important. And I have to tell you that Once I finally implemented changes in my life and I started prioritizing my wellness and my health, I ended up being more profitable than any other year of my career and more productive. So there definitely are better ways than simply pushing through. What you just said really resonated with me because it's something I know that personally I've been thinking a lot about and as an organization we've been thinking a lot about. But, you know, we talk about things like work-life boundaries and balance. And I think what we're collectively seeing in, you know, this day and age 
two years plus into a pandemic and all sorts of other stuff happening in the world is that it doesn't have to be an either or. We can take care of ourselves and actually that translates into so many other areas of our life. And so I'm really interested to hear a little bit further from you around how some of these experiences that you just shared have translated into your actual work. Because as you were sharing, to me, the word that immediately popped up in my mind was trauma. There's just so much trauma there. And I think that collectively, we're all experiencing collective trauma. And then there's, of course, the individual experiences that all of us bring to the table. And I'm curious if that's informed the work that you do, the way you manage, you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to dig into that a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think there are so many aspects to this issue, but one of the things that is really key is around bias in all of this. And I think that, you know, so much of this is driven by the way we're brought up, the culture, you know, the experiences and influences that we have as young people and then growing up and becoming adults into the workplace. We bring with us certain ideas and with that certain biases. And it's unfortunate. I mean, we do all hold certain and views and ideas, whether we realize it or not, some of us, you know, we have views or biases about things that we don't even realize. And for me, one of the things that I obviously realized about myself was that I was unconsciously judgmental of other women who didn't push through and keep going like I did. You know, if an employee said they were sick and they needed time off for something like the flu, I would silently think to myself, for goodness sake, it's just the flu. I mean, I've had surgery in the morning and been back at my laptop by the afternoon. But I was very, very wrong in that. I was unfairly judgmental and I was probably also jealous because I really did want to take time off to rest and to heal. I think the first step towards change for all of us is recognizing the areas where we might have these types of biases and then start to work on implementing change in how we perceive others. And the only way to do that is to really first recognize where we might be wrong and most importantly, why we're wrong and then work out ways to actively change our thinking around some of this stuff. Working out the why is an incredibly important part of this process because without understanding why we have certain views and why they may be outdated perhaps and not applicable to everyone or every situation, it's difficult for us to find purpose and ultimately commit to change. You know, as someone that suffers from a pretty serious health condition, it got to a point where I realized that I had to make some changes or I don't know what was going to happen to me. But also I think becoming a parent really does change you. It changes your priorities. All of a sudden, you know, you're thinking about about, well, in my case, two little girls, and they are absolutely my priority. And it's not just about them as individuals, though. For me to be the best mother that I can be, I have to be looking after myself. I'm no good to anybody if I'm sick, if I'm not able to perform at my peak. And that translates into the workplace as well, which is evident by you know this journey that I've been on. I want to be the best attorney, the best board member to the organizations that I'm part of. And I can't do that unless I'm looking after myself as well. And I think that's something as we 
women, we tend to do a very poor job of prioritizing our own health and wellness and feeling guilty about it when we do take that time. And we've simply got to stop that because, you know, we know the research and the data out there shows us that direct diverse organizations outperform every single time as far as, you know, profitability, productivity, lower share price volatility. We need more women within organizations. We need more women on boards. And so to be successful in those roles, we need to start looking at women in the workplace a little differently and recognizing that as women, we do have different experiences because we predominantly have more responsibility around childcare, around care responsibilities for elderly parents. We also suffer a lot of health conditions. You know, not every woman has my story. Not every woman will go through the issues that we do, but we absolutely know that, you know, statistically there are so many women that will experience things like endometriosis. We know that there are a lot of women that will experience fertility issues. And every single one of us goes through menopause and experiences certain issues or health issues relating to menopause, which by the way, I do want to just mention something around menopause because I think it's really important Even 10 years ago, menopause in the workplace was not something that we actively talked about, but the workforce has changed. There are now more women over 50 than ever before in the workforce. And so we are seeing a changing workforce and the needs of women within the workplace are changing as a result and employers simply must adapt. That was Naomi Seddon, international lawyer, non-executive director of Megapore Limited, Endometriosis Australia, and Surrogacy Australia, and the author of Milk and Margaritas. Here's Dr. Victoria Verletza. Supporting a healthy work environment can show up in a multitude of ways. And I think the first piece of it is how do my lenses, my patterns, my own unconscious bias, how does that play into my daily interactions? And then how might I be perpetuating ableism, sizes, sexism, racism without necessarily knowing it? So what kind of language am I using? What are my job descriptions looking like? What are my rubrics or do I have rubrics for hiring decisions? How am I thinking about hiring, for example? Am I thinking about culture fit or am I thinking about culture ad? When we're supporting a healthy work environment, we want to consider how the systems, so ableism, sexism, racism, etc., are playing into our daily interactions and the way that we think about our work, but also how are we thinking about productivity, for example? How are we expecting a certain level of production and producing during times like these, when we are experiencing global crisis after global crisis, can we consider people as whole people and not just cogs in a wheel? And I think that is a huge component of a healthy work environment. And it kind of goes into the idea of belonging. So belonging is bringing your full and authentic self to work. So if we can honor and respect and embrace whatever those things are for someone, we will increase folks' feelings of belonging, which therefore will transfer into diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So to promote a healthy work environment, what we really want to start doing is doing the both and work. And when I say that, I mean the self-work, but also the system work. So thinking about ourselves 
thinking about the way that we were raised and the concepts that we know or don't know and think about our awareness gaps, formerly known as blind spots. And how are we colluding with whatever those systems are at an organizational level. So really taking a good hard look at our policies, our procedures, the way that we think about PTO or vacation time or sick time or any of the policies that we have in place. If we can start examining those and pulling them out or thinking through them, we can promote that healthy work environment by allowing folks to be whoever they are whenever that is and really encouraging full self and therefore encouraging and promoting belonging. So one of the ways that we can start to challenge the systems. So for example, when we're thinking about this global crisis, right? And we're thinking about caregiving and how caregiving changes from day to day. So thinking about the folks who have kids or are caregiving for someone else, or we're thinking about folks who are single and living alone and maybe working at home alone, or we're thinking about folks who are neurodivergent and experiencing a mental health crisis in a moment. We can institute policies, but we can also model good leadership practice by embracing the unknown. So what do I mean by that? I mean, we really need to embrace what folks tell us. If someone is saying, I need a break, take a day. It will be okay. And for us as leaders, as managers, as someone supervising other humans and is responsible for other humans' growth, model that behavior. Be okay with taking the sick day. Don't work when you're sick. Don't get on your messaging system and start messaging. Or don't take a PTO day and troll or be on the back end like looking at what's going on. Take the day, model the behavior, and show the folks that you're supervising that it's okay to do that. The old model of working, the... And when I say old, I mean the former way of working was to not honor the fact that we need a break or we're burnt out or we have anxiety or we have other things going on for us, whether it be a mental health concern or we have an invisible or non-apparent disability. We as managers and employees, individual contributors and supervisors, CEOs, whoever, We have a duty to show our humanness, but also honor the fact that folks are experiencing things we might never know about. And rather than questioning their loyalty or questioning the way that they're producing, we really need to embrace flexibility. And we really need to embrace your time is your time. Your whatever that day looks like for you might not be the same for me. And that's okay. And how can we? institute maybe policies or practices or just norms on our team and embrace those norms and really dive into modeling the behavior. Like for me, I am strong with my boundaries. If I'm out, I'm out. Period. The end. And I do that to help others do that. I don't happen to be a leader at this moment, but it is a boundary I'm unwilling to flex on because it just shows that I don't have strong boundaries and I'm, I'm okay with doing more when I'm not actually working. So can we embrace taking the time off? And I personally think that we can. And I think that part of that is encouraging and promoting a healthy work environment. Now, also with that, I encourage folks to get rid of those policies or challenges, I guess, that encourage like 
getting out and moving or those, you've heard of those step challenges, right? Like, oh, the whole company is going to get X amount of steps. Well, that's exclusive. It could be exclusive for a variety of reasons. It could be that someone is in a larger body and doesn't want to be moving around like that. And they're okay that they just want to be whoever they are. And they like doing yoga and Pilates rather than walking because it's better for the joint for them. There could be somebody who's a wheelchair user. How do they participate in this step challenge? So really thinking about the things that we are asking our employees to do as like, quote unquote, fun activities. And how are those things feeding into different systems? I think about previous places I've worked where they would have a reimbursement for like a gym membership. That's promoting a particular type of culture. And we think we're encouraging healthy behavior, right? But we could be feeding into people's behavior around maybe eating disorders or disordered eating. We could be uh, feeding into orthorexia. And like, we don't know what we don't know. So we should just start to think these things through a little bit more and how they could be feeding into systems that we don't mean to perpetuate. Finally, here's Elisa Campos-Pretor to close us out. At SGO, we've been talking a lot about supporting new team members who have trauma from previous workplaces. There's a big change when you come into a healthy workplace where you have that psychological safety that can be a strange adjustment. Is that something that you've addressed during the onboarding process? What does it look like to welcome people onto a team that might be really different from anything that you've ever experienced before? Yeah, I love that question. It's something that I've even thought about and talked about with my managers, even from before when we start interviewing, right? Like, and seeing these individuals perhaps coming from more formal, like enterprise backgrounds and seeing that they may they have never worked remotely or if they have as an effect of COVID, having the conversations about it and being like, these candidates still meet all the requirements and we want to push them through, right? Like, and being mindful that maybe their background in like remote is pretty different from ours, but being okay with that, right? Like being able to have the conversation and talk to them and, and seeing how they feel and think about it. But on top of that, I love the fact that I call it the, like, I feel like a, a puppy that was maybe like abused and then you see something that's amazing and you don't want to trust and you don't want to believe it, but it really is the, the case, right? Where you're like, you know what? This is obviously a place that embraces you as a person living, honestly, your true life, like your true self. And so Scott's also has been pretty good about like, in general, like during the onboarding, we're also working on this amazing remote policy is how you live your best remote life is something that we're working on where it's going to really showcase a like the asynchronous communication, for example, how to best use Slack how to use these cloud-based tools that basically if you don't have to have a meeting because everything probably lives in somewhere and everybody can kind of come in and then be like, start learning on their own in their own time. And I thought that was pretty important versus throwing everybody into meetings right away and then being like, okay, you have to meet everybody. And then it's kind of like the expectation then starts setting up that you're going to have meetings all the time and you have to be there for them. And you may have to maybe talk in front of others or introduce yourself in front of others or give the fun facts. And I think, again, like if we're able to document everything, talk asynchronously with one another, that is top of mind. And then as we finish up that remote policy, I think it's also going to be really valuable for folks who, yeah, like maybe have bad remote experiences similar to mine, right? Like if we're able to be very clear and transparent of how we look at remote work right from the beginning during onboarding, and talk about it during onboarding, like 
then to me, that's better than me thinking like, is it like this? Is my manager like this? I really like that my manager, for example, gave me like, this is how I work. I would love to see how you work, right? Like just being very clear and direct and not having to second guess one another. Again, it's like documentation, just living somewhere so that you're able to go over and just take a peek. Be like, cool, like this person works till 3 p.m. mountain time. I shouldn't be sending them messages, right? Like stuff, little things like that, they do matter and they make a difference, especially coming from like a less positive work environment. Thanks so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It makes a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, this work. Make sure to tune in next week when we talk about building out a DEI program. If you're looking to further your own knowledge and gain support alongside other incredible people, join our free community. You'll get a welcoming built-in support system grounded in the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll have access to bonus episodes, additional resources, courses, webinars, coaching, and more. Check it out at shegeeksout.com community. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Vanity Giacomo, hosted by Felicia Jadzak and Rachel Murray. The guests featured in this episode were Bellman McCaffrey, Dr. Hong Depp, Dr. Becca Shansky, Karina Becerra, Melanie Ho, Naomi Seddon, and Lisa Campos Prador. Our facilitators were Futima Denke, Rachel Sadler, and Dr. Victoria Verletza. Mm-hmm.